Let me ask you this. Has failure ever had a positive result in your life? So if failure is positive, we should invite it. Well, I don't know. In my life, um, I have a lot of uh, failure examples that I could give you. I'm not going to go into all of those today, but uh, I have seen in my life that those times of failure many times produce significant spiritual revelation, spiritual transformation, spiritual change in my life. Just think about it. If you have success, there's a temptation towards pride, right? If you're good at something, everybody's accolading you and applauding you and everything is great, there's a tendency for you to go, yeah, I am pretty good, right? Um, But failure has this kind of power to kind of push us, nudge us towards the Lord, sometimes to receive comfort, sometimes to receive revelation, sometimes to help us through confusions and doubts and fears. Perhaps we could safely say that failure has greater power uh, than success for our spiritual journey. I would say, at least in my life, that's been the case. I think about the disciples as we've been going through this Ordinary People, Extraordinary God series, and we had about five or six weeks before Easter and then Easter. Now we're looking at all of the times where Jesus appears to people after the resurrection. And I think about the disciples. They have just kind of come through recently this emotional trauma of that week of the cross. And uh, think about Peter and his denials and uh, the, the abandoning of Jesus and probably some of the guilt that they feel about that. And uh, we find ourselves today in the 21st chapter of John. And up to this point now, we've seen Jesus appear to the disciples twice. Once he appears to them and he just kind of uh, says, here's the nail scars in my hands, it's me. I have risen from the dead. Then about a week later, we have the scene with Thomas where he says, here's the nail scars in my hands. Thomas, it's really me. You need to believe. They know it's him. Then we have, uh, then they must have both been excited about the fact that he has risen from the dead. He's appeared twice. But yet, uh, his appearances were eight days apart, and they were just kind of short, and they were kind of cryptic, and he didn't really give us any information. (laughs) What next? What's going to happen to us? What's going to happen of the movement? Did this all fail? I mean, yeah, he's risen from the dead, but what does that actually mean? Do we just go back to our lives that we had before he came? We see in this scene today in John 21, they're back in Galilee. They're on the Sea of Galilee. And um, it's over 100, maybe almost 125, 150 kilometers from Jerusalem where those scenes took place. So they've kind of migrated themselves back uh, to where they're from, most of them. And um, we find them in this scene in John 21. I'm going to read the whole thing and then we'll make comments. The first 14 verses of John 21. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee. John calls it the Sea of Tiberias, and to be honest, not in, no one's really sure why, but it is the Sea of Galilee. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together, seven of them. Simon Peter said to them, as only Simon Peter could say, I'm going fishing. They said to him, well, we're coming too. (laughs) 
They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught how many? Nada. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, this is kind of a term of uh, informality. It could have been like we would say, guys, you don't have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. So they cast and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, who we assume to be John, the author of this book, uh, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. He caught that. He put his clothes on and jumped into the sea. Peter, I guess, you know. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it in bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to, the land, to land full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Wow. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you? Huh, I guess not, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. You know, in studying this, well, part, of the, part of the frustration as a preacher sometimes is, I wish I could talk for like three hours on this particular passage of Scripture because there's so much here. We're good with that. Sorry. I have to whittle it down. I just have to say, okay, I'm going to focus on this slice of the pie. You know, why the number 153? I mean, I could go into all of that. I... Okay, back. Okay, here we go. This scene takes place probably these few weeks after the resurrection. Before Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has not come yet. Peter, he's probably the kind of guy who says, I just don't want to sit around. We don't know what we're going to do now. We don't know what the resurrection means. We don't know what's going to happen to this little movement we've been a part of. And Jesus has told us through the ladies to wait. Wait. I'm not good at waiting. I'm going fishing. He's a fisherman, after all. He's an expert. He knows what he's doing. He's good at it. Everybody else says, we'll join Peter. You know, in the back of his mind, there had to be this recollection of the denials where he'd said, I don't know, the, I don't know Jesus. Did it three times. I don't know Jesus. He's probably dealing with some of that, and there's probably some guilt and... Uh, this passage in John 21, the next few verses deal with that, and we're going to look at that next week. But no doubt, he's still kind of smarting over the failures. But he decides, I don't know what else to do. I can't just sit around and wait. I'm going to go back to my livelihood. I know I can fish. So they set out at night. We don't know if they were fishing all night. We don't know if they just got up in the middle of the night and went out there. But we know that when they were done, it was daybreak. And how much had they caught? Nothing. 
these experts caught nothing. You know, I don't know about you, but in my life, and uh, Jesus doesn't waste anything. He doesn't waste any hurt. He doesn't waste any failure. He doesn't waste any relationship, any problem. He uses it all for our good. It says that in Romans 8, 28. He has a way of taking the debilitations of this world and this life and what the world throws at us, and he doesn't waste it. Do you think Jesus wanted to teach them something about this event this morning? <laughs> he, wants to say, he wants to say, guys, I know you think you're experts, but I've got a spiritual uh, analogy I want to uh, make to you, and it's important that you don't catch anything on your own. It's important for what I want to teach you that you're a miserable failure at fishing today. How many of you think that Jesus made sure they had no fish in the net? I do. I do. In fact, I would go as far as to say this, this point. Jesus loves when our efforts fail. Amen. That's good news today, isn't it? Jesus loves when our efforts fail. Why is that? Just think about it. What if you could produce spiritual fruit without Him? What if you could have spiritual success without Him? He wants to continually show us the futility of self-reliance, self-dependence. I can do it. I don't really need you. Think of this scene. Lord, is that you out walking on the water tonight? Sure it is, Peter. Come on out of the boat. Come and join me. Wow. All right. I'm sinking. Oh, Peter, you have such little faith. Why'd you take your eyes off of me and look at all that stormy weather around you? When Jesus summoned him to, to come, he knew failure was on the horizon there. Have you ever had God expose you to your own unbelief or self-reliance apart from him? I remember a time in my life where um, I, I really just needed a job. Have you ever been there? Oh, there you are. I just really needed a job, and I had a couple of options, which is good. I had the option to teach school. I had a, a, an offer from a school district to go and teach uh, music in the school system, and uh, I had this thought that perhaps I could start out on my own and just teach private lessons in some homeschool choirs, and maybe if I could just start my own business, I could make enough for my young family to live on. And I weighed these two options, and I remember the day when... It was in May about this time of the year where I told the school district, it was the safe thing for me. I says, I'm going to come and teach uh, this next year at your school. After all, the other option required what? <laughs> faith. This was a sure thing. This was faith. And my fear drove me over here. 
to what I still refer to as the longest year of my life. I made less than I thought I would ever make. I suffered through the year, was not happy. My students were not happy. I mean, my students really were not happy, okay? About halfway through the year, I, I, I just did the math, and I thought, you know, the amount of students I need in my own business to meet this salary was about half of what I thought I would need to put food on the table for my family. So what do you think I did at the end of that school year? See ya! Started my own business. The Lord blessed it in ways beyond what I could have ever anticipated. When I started pastoring this church, I was still teaching there. Just do this part-time, do that part-time. You see, here's the thing. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Can we agree with that? But we have a problem. Our problem is we're not fully convinced. I don't mean to walk on your amens. You just did a big amen over that, didn't you? I mean, oh, apart from him, I can do nothing. I know. That's the problem. We know. And then we venture off thinking he really needs me. He really needs my help. Oh. oh, we can hear John 15, 5. We hear it in our, in our heads. We go, apart from me, you can do nothing. Yes, I agree with that. John, Colossians 2, 3. In Christ are all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. I have no treasure of wisdom or knowledge without him. Okay, I get that. John 14, 6. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Of course he is. Luke 9, 24. He who seeks to save his life will lose it, and everyone who seeks to lose their lives for his sake will save it. Oh, I understand those, but really? We read those, we even study those, and yet we scream for self-validation, self-recognition, self, self, self. It goes against every 21st century American success-driven culture bone in our body. To say, I need you. Apart from you, I can do nothing. Oh, I just don't want it up here. I want it in here. I want every morning when my feet hit the ground, I can't do it without you. I can't be the man you want me to be on my job. I can't treat people the way I want. I, I can't without you. You know, Michael Wells says this, a humble man is not one who says I am nothing, but one who recognizes he has nothing. When you see that we have nothing, the heart of necessity is open wide to receive what Christ gives. Humility causes the heavenly disciple to decrease and Christ to increase. The heavenly disciple, listen to this, the heavenly disciple is not competitive. Amen. Well, I want my team to win. What do you mean? 
I'm willing to talk bad about that person over there because they cheer for the wrong team. Listen to what he says. The heavenly disciple is not competitive for one simple reason. He recognizes he has nothing from which to compete. Worldly disciples, now understand this. He's talking about disciples who are Christians trying to live the Christian life according to a world's hierarchy of dog-eat-dog, dog. I got to get better than you, I'm more, I got more knowledge than you. I'm... You ever met a competitive Christian? I mean, in other churches you might have attended, right? Not this church. We don't have any of those here, but you know what I'm talking about. He says, worldly disciples rival others with their knowledge or deeds. You ought to let me teach my background, my understanding of Scripture. I ought to be the teacher. Why are you letting him teach? Or, oh, I know I'm new to your church, but I got to, I got to share with you all the ministries that I've been able to do in my lifetime. I want you to know how lucky you are. I mean, have you ever met one? Michael Wells goes on to say, For the day they stop pointing to Jesus, they have no one who wants to listen to them except for a few others who love the exaltation of religion and self. Other worldly disciples. I hope as we talk about it, you can see the, the freedom of dependence. You know what I'm talking about? The freedom of dependence and the bondage of self-reliance. The more that our efforts are to try to get our opinions heard, our abilities acknowledged, our way with others, the more life is just hard. It's competitive, it's hurtful, it's discouraging, it's maddening. It's not the way of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. It's just not. Andrew Farley writes this, The message of Jesus plus nothing from start to finish is often too humbling for us to swallow. <laughs> Jesus plus nothing. What do you mean? You don't need me? Instead, he says, we opt for performance hoops to jump through in order to impress God. Sure, we trust Him alone for salvation and a place in heaven. Good, I need God for that. But when it comes to daily living, it's difficult to fathom that He still wants to be our only resource and carry the load. <laughs> I love how Jesus uh, interacts with disciples in this scene. He kind of sets them up for the, the lesson he really wants to teach them. And he yells from the shore. It's just an amazing scene. He says, guys. And the way, it's, the way this question appears in the Greek is exactly with this kind of flavor. You don't have any fish, do you? It's not. Do you have any fish? No. The way it's, the way it's written is implying a negative answer. You don't have any fish, do you? Now, understand when he asks the question, do they know it's him? No. Scripture says they don't know it's him. Imagine being one of the disciples in the boat and some yahoo on the shore. You don't have any fish, do you? 
Weisenheimer, you know what I mean? Who does he think he is? And then he gives them instructions. Take your net out of the boat, throw it on the other side, and you'll get a catch. Now, I've read that it's common in those days that the guy on the shore probably has a better vantage point of fish than the people right up in the boat. You get away a little bit, you can see the school of fish out there. And so it would have been not out of the ordinary for somebody from the shore to yell some directions. No, you're on the wrong side. Throw it over there. You'll, yeah, I see him. And so they, they, they take the net out and they throw it over there thinking, okay, well, let's see if this works. Well, maybe we'll catch a few. And immediately what happens to the net? It's just overwhelmed with fish. It's like they've been waiting to jump into this net all morning. There is an abundance of fish because they did it Jesus' way. So here's the truth. With Jesus, we live a life of abundance. Amen? See, you said amen loudly the last time, and I got you. So now you're going, amen, amen. With Jesus, we live a life of abundance. Put the next one up there. Our problem is we're not fully convinced. Oh, we can hear over and over John 10.10. 10. You, you've heard it in your head, right? John 10.10. 10. I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more what? Oh, yes. That's what I do. Right? Philippians 4.13, it rings in my head. It says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All things, yes. Ephesians 3.20 says, He is able to do abundantly more than all we can even think or imagine. Yes, that's my life. Right? 2 Peter 1.3 says, He has given us everything, nothing lacking. He has given us everything for life and godliness. Oh, I just cherish all of this every day. I know that I have everything I need. I need nothing else from the Lord. My life is filled with overwhelming abundance. Right? How's abundant living going these days? Now, before you answer that question, you have to know how to get the answer. I mean, a lot of people, when you ask them, how's the abundant living going these days, they would say, well, I really don't like my job, so I guess not so well. You know, I just really don't have quite enough money. I have no retirement. Abundant? I don't think so. I have these health issues that keep cropping up, and it's just like... You know, if God could get me a better job and give me more money and clear all these health issues out of my life, I would... <laughs> Abundance! I'm there. We don't think that way, do we? Michael Wells, again, what is the proper formula for finding abundant living? That's his question. Then he gives the answer. The plan so often supplied by believers appears to be equally disappointing to the one given by someone in the world. In other words, we define abundance the same way somebody in the world defines abundance. The secret to it is not found in words and actions. 
life, abundant life, is found in a person and a relationship with that person. Abundant living is Jesus. He is abundant. And when Jesus is real and we jump out of the boat and we race to the shore because He's there, there is this, there is this fullness that all those worldly things I talked about just can't replace. In other words, how much time, mental energy, even anguish do you give to things that will mean nothing once you get to heaven? You ever think about that? Everything that you put so much stock in, you're trying to resolve this and this and this. If I could just get that. It's like the guy who says, I want to spend all my time and energy making money so I can have a nice retirement and leave money for my kids when I die. Really? That's going to be the mark of your life? I mean, I'm trying hard to spend all my money. (laughs) My son's here today. I don't know why. I got so many Michael Wells references today, but he just, his, when I was reading his book, he just, that fits, that fits, that fits. He, he's in Switzerland one day, and he sees this guy. He's in this beautiful land of Switzerland. There's this river running down through the beautiful green pastures, and he sees this guy living out there in this old shack filled with junk. In fact, there's so much junk in it, he has to live most of his life outside. I mean, there'd be worse places, right? He can't get in because it's so full of junk. And Michael Wells, he says, I thought to myself, you know what the greatest thing could happen to that guy would be? A flood. He said, it would be so great if a flood could come through here and he would survive, but everything else would just get washed away and he could start brand new and hopefully eventually he would see that the value of his life life was greater than all the junk with which he had surrounded himself. You got any junk? I mean, what are you trying to protect? I can't lose that or my hope is gone. Okay, I'm going to say this, and you would expect a preacher to say this, but I really mean this. If it's not Jesus, it's junk. I mean, Paul puts it this way in Philippians 3.8. More than that, I, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of most of my stuff. All things. All things I count but rubbish. Because I just want Him. I just want Him. Here's the equation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Peter knew that in that moment. 
got to get to him. You know what's amazing? What do you think Peter's thinking? Do you think Peter's thinking about 153 fish in the net as he's going? Even the blessing doesn't matter. Because there's Jesus. I know that guy on the shore. He's the risen Christ. He couldn't wait in the boat. He couldn't take the time to struggle with all those fish. It's because Jesus was there. I'll get there. I think about my mom. You know, so much of my life, so much of my mom's life was a struggle. She grew up in a home with a dad that was just, he was in the home, but he was totally absent relationally. Her mother was completely incapable of words of affection or showing of affection in any way. And I remember when I was a teenager, I would notice my mom read a lot of books and they were all by Christian psychologists. She just kept trying to figure out, why do I have such pain, such fear? And yet it kind of was difficult for me because in the midst of her struggle, and I knew she must be struggling. My mom was so much fun. My mom had the quickest wit of anybody I've ever known. Now, I know that's hard for you to imagine my mom would have wit, but she does. I remember when I was in high school, she went into the hospital for two weeks, and uh, I never got an explanation what was the matter with her. I think years later, it was a nervous breakdown of some kind and just processing life was difficult for her. And yet she loved Jesus. And a few years before she died, she suffered this debilitating stroke. And my dad became this constant caregiver for those final few years of her life. And uh, I'll never forget the last visit with my mom when I went to Kansas City to see her. And uh, she was just so frail. She didn't even weigh 90 pounds, I think. And she couldn't really say her words that clearly. But you know what I noticed? I noticed this. It was just so radiant in her face is that she was still with us, but the struggle was gone. There was just this countenance of joy. She knew she was almost home. She laughed like she always did. She talked a lot about Jesus. She talked a lot about the future. She talked a lot about going home. She sang songs. I have videos of her singing that day. Nothing this world would say is important. Her struggle, her hurt, her fears... Didn't matter because, why? 
Heaven's on the horizon. I thought about that on my own journey, and I thought, I want to live that way now. Amen? Heaven's on the horizon. I don't want to get embroiled in the struggle. I often ask myself, if I knew I had six months left, and that was it, six months, would I live differently than I'm living right now? And if so, why don't you just live that way? Life that matters is life that matters to eternity. I want to be honest with you today is that I know there's a place that I visit often. It's more of a spiritual place than a physical place. It's an altar. I mean, I grew up in a church that had a, a kneeling altar that you would go and you'd, you'd pray there. And uh, it was even that physical space was symbolic of a place a place of sacrifice spiritually, a place of letting go, a place really of death. It's where they sacrifice the animals in the Old Testament. and uh, It's a place where distance between you and Christ is gone because you're there to be with Him. And as you look at your life today, you may say there are some compromises and... Uh, I've made. And I have been fooling myself that there's a lot of things I can do without him. You might be here today and you're just kind of burned out. You're just exhausted. Maybe empty. You know, the altar is a good place. Amen? It's just a good place. It's a good place. It's, it's, it's where you believe again. It's where you feel again. It's... Sometimes we come to Christ and, and we say, I, 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 I want this and I, I need this and I, I, I hope that you can enter in here. and do." And... But the altar is a place where we just... It's not about trying to get Him to do it. Here I am, Lord. And we always come away from the altar with, oh, what a Savior. Isn't He wonderful? Isn't He wonderful? It's where abundance is. <laughs> I want the band to come and prepare for our last song. I want you to bow your heads with me. Father, no doubt there are folks here today That when they answer the question, is my life abundant spiritually, their mind goes to places that give them evidence to say, no, it's not. There's, there's too many things that anger me. There's too many things that frustrate me. There's too many things that discourage me. And uh, the reality is I want God to fix those things before I get real with Him. Or I want God to intervene and... The relationship is based upon God's performance rather than just on the beauty of the Savior. 
And I'm praying in these moments, Father, that they would receive the invitation in their soul as we sing this song, this song of invitation to an altar, that they would spiritually go to that place. That they would spiritually say, God, I'm not holding you over the barrel any longer. I'm not saying that you have to do it my way. I am coming as this living sacrifice saying, Lord, I want the abundance of life and I know (laughs) it's only you. I'm not going to find anywhere else. It's only you. We invite you to come today.